0: I'm tired of winter, everybody. Oh, it's It's snowing a lot. It's snowing a lot everywhere. But you know what? I shouldn't complain because I live in Chicago, where we have the equipment for snowing a lot.
1: It's true. Um. So wait, we should. We're gonna if we're gonna banter, Jen. We should. We should introduce. Well, first of all, welcome to Fate of Mates, everyone. (laughs) We're doing it. We're doing it. Just right, right there. Ish. I'm Sarah McLean. I write romance
0: novels and I read romance novels. I'm a Jennifer Procop. I'm a romance reader and
1: critic. And today we have our friend Kate back. Hi, everyone. Guess what? It's time number five.
2: It is officially
0: ah, time number there you go. five. <laughs> there you go. Pink lady jacket in the mail.
2: It's in the mail. I'm very excited to be here. I'm also concerned that all your listeners are sick of me, so I'm going to no. try to be super interesting.
1: It's going to happen. Um, not possible. Also, did we talk about, I don't know if we said this on the last episode, but our Derek Craven episode was the most downloaded episode ever of all episodes of Fated Mates in the first week. And that perplexes me no small amount because it was such a weird episode. You, thought, you guys thought
2: no one was going to hear it. And you know what? Yeah. I also thought no one was going to hear it, which is probably <laughs> why
1: I agreed to do it. Sure. And then Lisa Kleypas was like,
0: no, it's not okay.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm listening to it. Oh. So... <laughs> We did hear that Lisa listened to it, and we heard that it gave her a great deal of delight. So,
0: Um, My friend Ernie also listened to it. He's never read Dreaming of You. He's read, like, two romance novels, but he's now a diehard *Faded mates listener because he thinks it's hilarious. But he said, he's like, I'm I'm getting it. I'm getting who this Derek Craven guy is. So he was, like, he was texting me as he was listening, and then he would, like, be like, would Derek Craven carry an animal in a bag? He was like, never. And he's like, I'm I'm just (laughs) figuring it out from context. And I was like, you know...
1: Fine. Fine. That's how we all learn to read, Ernie. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what? We,
2: in fact, we were doing something educational with that episode and we had no idea. We had no idea.
1: We really didn't. I will say my best friend, who is best friend Megan, (laughs) has never read a romance novel written by anyone but me. And so she texted me two days ago and was like, well, I bought that Derek Craven book. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, she's going to have all those like those thoughts in her head when she reads it. She's like, she's like I'm 25 pages in. He's obviously Tom Hardy. Yes. I was like, I'm so glad that you could be with us on this journey, Megan. But also, be prepared. The book was written in 1993. You're getting into the deep end of the pool. Yes, yeah. right. Exactly. Just... <laughs> starting off with the Iron Man so I don't know I mean if she'd ever said to me hey Sarah <laughs> what romance novel should I read that you haven't written I might have said read Kate Claiborne but instead it's Derek Craven, Craven. So I'm very proud to have been a part of that episode
2: I'm a part of <laughs> Faded Mates history you are
1: <laughs> Our it's best, amazing. well, and it's obviously because of you, Kate, that it was. <laughs> <our most laughs> yes, that's everybody so, heard I
0: was sure. on and dumb. <laughs> yeah, they were like they needed to bring us up, uh, someone to like keep it straight. Yeah, because yeah. we would have been... enjoyed.
2: I've enjoyed that kind of popularity my whole life. It's just like the high school cafeteria. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's sarcasm in case it's not coming across on the bot. It, it, it came across fine. but <laughs> we are
1: we are so excited because we get to have you for your fifth time on yes. the show. You're the first one to have hit five. What an honor. I mean
0: it <laughs> what should an be honor. it should mm-hmm. be really.
1: And it then is. we are very excited to have you for your second time this month February Romance mm-hmm. Month. Romance month. I mean, that in itself should tell you how much we love you. Yep. To talk about your fucking fabulous (laughs) new book. And... I really feel like Kensington should put that on the cover. Oh. <laughs> Obviously. I'll, I'll let them know. I'll let
0: them know.
1: Listen, Jeff, talk about a Jen and Sarah
0: rebranding my in order. Oh, my
1: God. I stayed up reading this book until 4 o'clock in the morning, and I was mad at you for how bad it is. <laughs> like, really, like, hurt. I hurt.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think that's a compliment like, from, this from
2: one writer bitch. to another.
0: <laughs> It is. It's a compliment. I read it last summer, I think. Didn't I, Kate? I can't remember. And Yeah,
2: yeah not yeah, not It history. was real
0: early in the process. Or you know, it was like a sort of a f- the, f- you know, right as you were doing page edits, I think, yeah. or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. And um I just remember thinking and it kind of happened to me again this, you know, I was rereading for this.
1: And it just like swept me away, oh, and I was like, "So oh. beautiful, so beautiful." Oh, you guys She's are nice. such a gorgeous writer. Makes me so nice.
2: <laughs> well, I know we're going to talk. Of, I know we're going to talk about that specific book more. Yep. But but you had me on because we had a, we had a theme in mind. Yes, for talking yes. She's
1: about keeping us on honest, this book. keeping us on on brand. I made I made an agenda. <laughs> We started with banter. By the way, if you live in if you live in Texas and you're listening to us, this oh week, man, right? we're thinking of you. Yeah, we're worried about you. We hope you're running your faucets and uh, you stay know, warm. Yeah, yeah, being careful out there. Yeah, well, in all of the South, I mean Louisiana, I saw some
0: pretty scary bridges today. They were showing, and Northern Alabama. I think it's going to be somebody
1: on uh, old school book. Romance book club on Facebook said that Arkansas is just, like, a mess, too. So, Oh. oh, the Northerners are sending good love and, you know, I don't know. Don't trust your four-wheel drive means nothing. Hopefully you haven't had to discover that yet, but yes, just because you ice. have a big truck with four-wheel drive doesn't mean that you're going to be safe, so stay home. Yeah. Don't get, get cocky Get, out get there. under the covers. Maybe Don't we've all cocky. seen
0: that video of a guy in Nashville with a four-wheel drive just slide oh right down his block. Terrible.
1: I mean, that's, that's what happens when in places where people have big trucks and no snow. It's yeah, like, right. they're like, oh, it's no problem. I, I have four wheel drive. And then the, they just no. they skate
0: away on Doesn't the road work like that. Oh, so, yeah, stay warm, stay safe.
1: Listen to this podcast. If you are snowed in, you can just go right online and order the ebook of Love at First. Yes, you can. Right, which is out now. We are, because we are in the future. Yes, that's right. This is chaos. Your book is out. (laughs) Instant juggernaut. Oh, man. I'm excited. (laughs) I will say,
0: I remember when I was younger and weather was going to get bad, the kind of planning you would have to do for new books. And now with your Kindle, it can just be right there. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Right to your down comforter. Another really exciting thing we should say before we start talking about retellings is that love lettering, which is your... Last year's book is an Overdrive read. Yes! That's so
1: cool. Explain
0: to everybody what that is.
2: Yeah. So Overdrive, uh, many libraries um, across the country and in some other countries, too, use Overdrive as their, like, digital library app. So if you belong to a library and you uh, download books through your library, Overdrive is the app that you might use. And Love Lettering is their uh, Together We Read pick for February. So patrons of libraries all across the country can check it out with no wait between February 10th and 24th. So actually, that's, that's when this podcast comes out. That's still on for today. So if your library is participating.
1: So what you do yeah. is you download it and then you turn off your Wi-Fi <laughs> and then you read it and then you turn... On I just want to say <laughs> if you download on the 23rd, you still get your regular
2: loan time. Oh, right. not Well then whatever. Don't break rules like me. I'm always like, I
0: gotta break all the rules to keep this, <laughs> to keep this library book.
1: Yeah. But
2: it's been very fun. People have been sending me um pictures of their library's homepage, like all across the country, and that's really fun. And I just have been having these little moments where I'll be like thinking about like a famous person, I'll be like, I wonder if that person uses their library app. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I wondered if, did Dr. Jill Biden see love lettering? Cause I bet Dr. Jill Biden uses her oh, library app. You oh, know
1: of what? Course. I bet Dr. Jill Biden also would love, <laughs> like, I feel like she would see that and be like, that looks like a fun one. Well, because we, you saw that video of the two of them and her yes, yeah. little the white house lawn with yeah. those giant yes. hearts. They went on a Dr. walk. Dr. Jill Biden loves a book called Love Letter. Yeah, so does. anyway, Dr. Jill Biden. Let's get it call to me. Her. <laughs> no, Let's get it to her. How do we get it to her? Oh, that's awesome.
0: But let's talk about retail. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> we have to do a lot of throat clearing at the beginning, yes. Kate. You okay. just gotta get used to us. We're
1: yeah, we're I'm getting comfy. <laughs> it's
0: 10 minutes in. Usually we're a solid 15 or 20. We get so nervous, really, at the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> All right, so, but we should talk about retellings first before we talk about specific examples because I think one of the things that's really, I mean, romance loves a retelling. Big time. Romance is almost built on retelling. Yeah, absolutely, but I think that there's different, like, degrees of retelling maybe is like a way to put it right so for some it's like a beat for beat you know you're really gonna read Pride and Prejudice um like Pride by Ibi Zaboy is a real like it's a YA retelling of Pride and Prejudice set in Brooklyn and a lot of
1: the like story beats like actual plot points kind of get retold or, like, a twist, like a Pride and Prejudice, but it's from Darcy's point of view. Or Pride and Prejudice, but it's from, you know, Lydia's point of view. Um,
0: and then in that case, you know, the characters are all often named Darcy, or right? Like, there's a lot of really straight up, like, they're not even really clues. It's just like, hey, this is what this is. Um, and then you have, I think, on the other end, Kate's book, Love at First, is, I think, playing around with the way I describe it to people is it's not like the plot retelling, it's the emotions of, room. it's like, right, it's like an emotional thing, and you're taught, and I I would love for you to talk about it eventually, but I think we're going to talk about retellings first, but I think it's important to say some people might not like retellings because they're thinking, oh, I didn't like Sleeping Beauty, so I wouldn't like this book, and I don't think it has to be that way. I think there's, retellings can be really appealing, and sometimes you're reading one and you don't even really know what it is, so. Yeah, I would agree.
2: And I think sometimes, I think that's true that, like, sometimes people think, oh, I don't, I'm not interested in that retelling because I didn't like the original text, but I also think there's a way in which we might be drawn to retellings of things that we, di- we didn't we did quite like. Sure. Um Like, I was thinking, before we recorded today, I was thinking a little bit about the episode you guys did, Probably a few months ago now, with um, Christina and Lauren about fanfic, mm-hmm. and I was thinking a lot about like the intersection between fanfic and retellings, and just like the idea that there are texts that are like formative for us um, that kind of like live in our minds, and we are always in a sense like sort of going over them or going over the themes of them. Um, and you know like what fan fiction does right is like a story has taken hold of you either because you want a different version of it so you're going to you're going to write it or you're going to write different scenes or whatever um i mean that makes me think about kind of the range of fan fiction that exists it's mm-hmm. like alternate universe fan fiction or kind of in the right. same fan fiction or whatever but anyway i think i guess you know what it made me think about was like how stories take hold of us and like why we feel compelled to tell them in different ways or in new ways um and i think that's that's particularly interesting in romance because like sarah said i mean romance does a lot of retelling work right so i think it's interesting to think about why that is like You know,
1: why is that so central to our genre? You know, I'm so glad you brought up fanfic because one of the things that I have been thinking about a lot with retellings is this idea of, you know, when you write a book, we often say, I mean, I I always say, like, the book doesn't really exist until somebody's reading it, right? Like, there's, I build it, I build the book, and then I, I set it loose. And then it becomes whatever it becomes without really me having any control over it. Um, and, and I, I mean, I'm, I don't know if you feel the same way, but, but that's really how I feel. It's, it's how I feel every time, you know, some, some piece of a book becomes really resonates with a lot of readers, for example. And I had no, often it's something that I did not know was going to be the thing that every reader, Mm -hmm. you know, was drawn to, but there it is. Like, it just lives in the world as a different creature, Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the reasons why romance does so much work around retelling and why fanfic does so much work around retelling is because we really feel such ownership over the text as readers and over the characters as readers. And fundamentally, we want them done justice. And um, so maybe there is a sort of sense of, well, I read that, that one book, right, where that thing happened and it didn't. Sit right with me, Um, Mm -hmm. as you said. And so, you know, yes, Lauren, when you reference Lauren, Lauren's fanfic was about a redo. She rewrote essentially Breaking Dawn, you know, from the moment of their marriage, right? Like Mm -hmm. straight through. Um, Because she just, she felt ownership over those characters. And I've been thinking a lot about this in general in the world as we talk about authors who have made, who have, you know, people like J.K. Rowling who, like, have written important texts for so many people and then suddenly you sort of have to reconcile with them and, like, who owns the characters at some point is a question that I think a lot of us are wrestling with, especially now as um, the world shows us the many faces of authors. Like, gone are the days when, like, Thomas Pynchon could just, like, close his door and live his life.
2: Yeah. And I think that's interesting too, because I mean, we've been talking about retellings and really in romance, there's sort of like two threads of that, right? Like one thread is like fairy tales, right? Um, And, and fairy tales, the, the sort of ownership question about fairy tales or the authorship question about fairy tales. Yeah. Right. Um, But, but then there's like literary fairy tales. And I mean, in romance, it seems to me, it's like, the fairy tale that I see most often is Beauty and the Beast and the the literary text I see most often is Pride and Prejudice. Like those those are the things I see most often.
0: But I think a third one is pop culture mm. and, and I and yeah. I want us to like talk about that too, but I th- I think you're right that it's Beauty and the Beast and Pride and Prejudice. Do yeah. you think it's not Cinderella?
1: I do not think it's Cinderella. Cuz I feel like Cinderella is like the it's the it's a cornerstone text of, in terms of retellings and romance. Like, I feel like often we're not even thinking about Cinderella and we're writing, you know, poor girl, like billionaire hero, you know, she's down on her luck. He's going to do everything he can. I mean, like if it basically feels like it's the, it's the DNA of that one archetype. That's a good point. Yeah. Cinderella is a good, but I mean, beauty and the beast is where that's where, you know, a lot of the that's where the exciting, like grovelly, like like a hero archetype versus a heroine archetype. Yeah, that like alpha
0: hero. I think with Cinderella, it's different for me. I th- it's real old fashioned. Yes. And I also think that um she's a character without a lot of agency in the original. And I think that there's a way in which um, that becomes a hard sell. Um, we don't like to see heroines as victims. You just said something interesting, though. You said Cinderella is a heroine archetype,
2: and Beauty and the Beast gives us a hero archetype. And that's that's actually really interesting. I mean, the Cinderella story does get retold a lot with a, with a Cinderella that has more yes, agency.
1: Yep, right. And that hero, often, often in those retellings, the hero is flat. Like, he... He's yeah. kind of a stand-in for any rich hero, can sort right. of. You know, there's that What's old... What's the guy in Cinderella? Who's the guy? It's Prince Charming? Aren't they all Prince Charming? Have you guys ever heard that Seinfeld bit where he's like... That's why, to me, a wedding is like the joining together of a beautiful, glowing bride and some guy. <laughs> The tuxedo is a wedding safety device created by women because they know that men are undependable. So in case the groom chickens out, everybody just takes one step over and she marries the next guy. That's why the wedding vow isn't, do you take Bill Simpson? It's, do you take this man? (laughs) That's how it feels with Cinderella. Like, it's Prince Charming or this other one. Who cares? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we don't
0: want to see Cinderella, like, victimized, but we like to see... Oh, I want to see the beast like broken down though. Mm-hmm. So I do. I think that's part of what's going on Yeah. There.
2: In Beauty and the Beast, I mean the Beauty and the Beast retellings, like one one function that Beauty and the Beast retellings often serve is that they allow that really like tight focus on the romance, right? Because the yes. in Beauty and the Beast, right? It's like yeah. they are they are in this castle mm-hmm. alone, right? Like yeah. all the all the conflict comes from just like you know, just that uh, tight focus, and I think that's really interesting. Um,
1: and so I can kind of see why that get why that's a very popular
2: romance yeah. retelling.
1: Yeah, but here's my question: like, would we even say? I think when when we have this conversation about like, well, is it Cinderella? Is it Beauty and the Beast? Like, would we even say that Cinderella exists as a retelling in most of these stories? Like, if you don't know, are you retelling it? right? Like if the tree for- falls in the forest, like if the archetype is there, but you're not a, like, you're not thinking about Cinderella, it doesn't mean that you did it or not. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, that feels like a reader versus writer thing. It's that, you know, Venn diagram, what a writer means, like what your English teacher says. Right. A writer means. Yeah. Versus what you experience as a reader.
0: You know, one of the things I think about a lot is that in order to qualify as a, like a retelling, I think there are things people are going to, like, look for as markers. Yeah, I think so, too. And I feel like if, you know, the Cinderella archetype is going to be different than a Cinderella retelling. Mm-hmm. And at some point, if someone's like, look, there's not a ball and there's not a glow up and there's not some fancy uh, shoes, the then it's, up, I'm, right? Then I'm not going to actually, like, it's not going to feel as much like a retelling as it would if it's just sort of this character archetype. So I do think when we use the word retelling, a lot of people really are, to me, what that means is without any handholding, readers are going to see what they're reading and they're going to understand. Like I read, um, Zachary Bronson, I don't, where dreams mm-hmm. begin when, and you know, the minute she goes to his like house and it's like this palace with like the gold butterfly wallpaper, I was like, it's Beast's castle, right? And and so I think as readers, retellings often what what people like is that moment of like recognition. Yeah, I didn't even think that. Really? I, I
2: really yeah, I didn't think when I. Re- but maybe I was like very distracted by everything else about yeah. that book. That. Um, wow.
0: But it, for me, it was like that moment where he's like, "Come live in my house," and yeah. then it's this like birthday cake of a house, right? <laughs> to me, it really did feel like mm-hmm. I, I i literally at the moment where I'm going to find it, I'll put it in show notes, like this description of the wallpaper. I was like, that's Beast Castle right there.
2: But I mean, Sarah, you've put a lot of fairy tale stuff in your book. So like when you do it, what do you feel like you're doing as do the I? author? Um, I guess
1: I... <laughs> Yes, I have. Uh, this most recent series, the Parental Bastards, I have right. The first book was Rumpelstiltskin, and I wanted it to. I was like, Rumpelstiltskin is amazing. Like, what happens if you take the concept for that series? Though, was very like I wanted to play with this idea of like antiheroes. There, I mean, Devil is such be All of them are such antiheroes that it felt like. Well, there are all these. There are all these fairy tales where the anti where. You know there is a there is a villain, and what if the villains were the heroes, right? And so that first book is Rumplestiltskin, and I did it intentionally, but I didn't want it to be the story. I, I'm not right. interested in an overt retelling, right? Like it's not interesting to me to tell she's
0: not trapped in a room spinning shit into you know. No, Thrawn I mean to talk goal, about right? a
1: character with no agency, right? Like she literally can't do anything without this like goblin person. Right. But I, uh, but I really wanted, I liked that idea of like, imagine getting yourself into like the exact worst possible situation and then having somebody who made you slightly nervous or very nervous, turn up in the dead of night and promise you that he could fix it for you. right? Right. And like how that could be incredibly sexy too, because obviously like, I'm a troubled mind. <laughs> um, but for me, I mean, my, I don't think of, I don't, I think that there are lots of fairy tales in my books by virtue of me writing romance novels and fairy tales just exist in the romance world. Um, but for me, my work is, my books are really about myth and retelling, yeah. mm-hmm. retelling mythology, like the retelling work that myth myth does um, and I'm really fascinated. I know you are too, Kate, about with this idea of like, at what point does the story not, I, I mean, as I said earlier, like at what point does the story not belong to the author one, but then on the next level, at what point does the story get to be just sort of constantly changed? Like at what point do I get to say, that's actually not how the myth went at all. This is how it went instead. And I think when you go back to these you know formative texts in whatever culture and you say like this text is 4000 years old and it's been retold yeah. a dozen two dozen times or more hundreds of times always with in in many cases with the with greek and roman re- myth with the heroines like dying or you know some sort of tragic thing happening to the women in the story At what point do I get to say, well, that's 4,000 years old, and the 201st retelling is going to be mine, and I'm going to shift it around? I'm
0: really fascinated by stories that exist, like, not just in one culture, but in multiple cultures. So everyone has heard me say my favorite book to teach is this book, House of the Scorpion. And everyone has also heard me talk about, like, my rules of symbolism that I teach kids, right? And number one is animals are always symbols, and number two is fairy tale figures and mythological creatures are always symbols. And in this book, one of the stories that gets told is the story of La Llorona, which is essentially the weeping woman, and it's a, a, a it's a story about a woman who kills her own children to get back at her her her, her bad husband. And I talk to the kids about Medea, not that right, like the there's something really frightening in about a woman who refuses to nurture, and every culture has a story that is like grappling with this like big question, right? What do you What are you going to do when you have a mother who won't mother? And then I talk about Andrea Yates, who's a woman who because of postpartum psychosis, killed her own children. I mean, and I know this is, like, with seventh graders, and trust me, it's all great, and the kids are not terrified. But I think it's really interesting to talk about, I don't know, like, culturally, not just, like, who owns the story when it comes to individuals, but, like who owns the story, like, why do these stories even exist at, like, a metal level, and why, which stories are the ones that really, like, stick with us? Like, why do we have 800 million Beauty and the Beast and, you know, and Cinderella retellings, but only a handful, if we could even name more, of Rumpelstiltskin ones in romance? Like, what is it about the DNA of certain stories that, like, funnels down? Maybe horror has lots of Rumpelstiltskin retellings. I imagine
1: it must, Right. But also, to your point, you know you can you can you can blow that out into far beyond the fairy tale right like in the mytho- in mythology I mean, there must be two hundred thousand hades and Persephone retellings in romance in the last year yes <laughs> I mean everyone's yeah, got really popular this story for the same reason it's like the push pull there's also a safety to it, which I think is what you're getting at when you talk about like mother, these kind of nurture, mothers who don't nurture is a terrifying story, but in storytelling there's a barrier, right? Yes. It goes back to um, what Dr. Jennifer Lynn Barnes talks about when she talks about universal ids, which I think we've, we talked about like way back, maybe on season one here, but she has this, she does a lot of her, she's a a professor in Oklahoma and she does a lot of her work around popular fiction and the brain and why certain books become popular, become bestsellers. And her concepts, you know, she's done tons and tons of research with readers and whatever. And she came up with these kind of six universal ids, like things that essentially push our pleasure buttons as humans. And one of the things she talks about is danger being one of those things. But of course, it's not really dangerous to read about danger. It's very safe to read about danger, but it still scratches that itch for us. And so I think. Um, you know, in romance, we're constant. That's why Hades and Persephone, for example, or Beauty and the Beast, really work well for so many of us because there's that sort of threat of what's it going to be like, and you know, is he a monster, and you know, what happens to me when I'm in hell, or what happens to me when I'm finally in the castle alone? But of course, you're safe because at the end, you're gonna fall in love. <laughs> it's re- it's really interesting to think about, like the
2: intersection in romance between like retelling and and sort of trope. Like trope is such an important language for romance readers. But um, like when we talk about retellings, is that somehow different from trope? Are they all overlapping? I mean, I can say for myself as a reader, like I really like retellings. Like if if somebody like gets on the gets on the timeline and advertises their book as like it's this sort of retelling, I'm like, oh, I'm interested. Yeah, in that. yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, because I'm I'm interested in storytelling. I'm interested in like n- you know narrative style or whatever. So the the fact that I know something is a retelling is going to be interesting to me. Well,
1: you we're all we talk so much about like we're all so interested in craft. That, and it this sort of requires yeah. a sort of, a deep craft.
2: Yeah. So I mean, I'm always interested in it for those reasons too. But then, of course, like within the sort of like universe of retellings, as you guys said, there's like some things that will appeal to me more than others, and and that certainly has to do with trope, right? Like, um, and so I'm I'm kind of interested in how those things intersect a bit, right? Like beauty, in, a Beauty and the Beast retelling. There I mean, is that a trope in and of itself or is that
1: retelling embedded within it? Are there a bunch of tropes that we are? Is it possible drawn that to? when it's done so many times, like at some point it just becomes owned by us as a trope? Yeah, that's interesting. Like it's the beauty and the beast trope. Like <laughs> it's not even a retelling anymore. As a as yeah. a genre, we've claimed it. It's ours. On the horror side, it's a retelling for them, but it's not a trope for them. Or maybe it is. I don't know. If you know a lot about horror, tell us. But I'm thinking right now, in answer to your question, I'm thinking about something like Pygmalion, right, which feels so—I mean, it's My Fair Lady, right? So it feels like it's in—we've seen it a thousand times, redone in different ways. And I think about Judith Ivory's The Proposition, which is— Uh, famously like a rat catcher hero and a heroine who makes a deal to present him as an aristocrat and convince essentially London that he is, he is not a rat catcher, right? I mean, it's reverse Pygmalion. And I think, I think that's in that particular case, it's so clearly a retelling of the original, but certainly like, Maybe Pygmalion is is in the trope of the glow-up always. Mm-hmm.
0: I agree, but I, I think for me the interesting question becomes, like, not, like, both, like, what has to be there, but also, like, what are the parts that are changeable? And then those seem to be the things that are, like, really responsive to, like, who we are now. So, like, the glow-up maybe it's always a part of it but like what is what's what's being glowed right. up right mm-hmm. is it just your is it clothes is it your house is it your physical looks is it i mean i don't know like i feel like maybe is it your intelligence your educational background i mean i remember when i i heard ibby's a boy talk about pride which is a pride and prejudice retelling and she talked about how education had to be essentially what um like education was sort of the thing that they were after because that right now is the right. And then it was like a gentrification story, but she talked about like, I had to really think about how was I going to make this story modern? Like what were the things that would have to be, that would have to change?
1: Which I think is why it goes back to what Kate was saying, the why it's so fascinating when somebody takes on a text that is so known. Right. Because I think you can take on something like Pygmalion or Hades and Persephone or any number of myth or Beauty and the Beast or whatever and do it fine because it's just sort of in the it's in the ether. Right. But I think it takes a lot of chops to take pride and prejudice and like truly renovate it in the way that pride does or in the way that Sonali Dev does. I think it takes a lot of chops to take um to take Shakespeare and, like, truly renovate it. And I think there it's hard to do. Like, there was a time in the 80s and 90s when a lot of people were doing Taming of the Shrew. And, like, now I think it's a lot harder to do Shrew. Like, that's not a great model for a modern romance right and i know and i want to call out nisha sharma is doing it right now and her book dating dr dill is coming out and i'm you know i trust nisha implicitly to be able to pull this off but i think it takes chops um which is why i think retellings can be so hit or miss when you're really doing a beat for beat version yes Right. Because I don't want to read Pride and Prejudice again. I have read the original, right? I want to read Pride and Prejudice, but a new version. Something that makes me think about it in a different way.
2: Yeah. I mean, and that's that's something we haven't really said, right? It's like a a great retelling will not only sort of live with you in the moment of the retelling, but it will... Yeah. Illuminate with, the original. Yeah. It will live with your, alongside your perspective of the original text. I mean, like a, a great retelling does that. And I, I think there are texts like that. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I mean, of course, because we're on a yeah. podcast, I can't think of one immediately, but I, I will.
0: We'll um, there. yeah.
2: but you know, like there are, texts that, you know, sort of original texts that now when I think of them, I think of them alongside.
0: Yeah. Can I tell you, for me, the pair that always comes to mind is Emma. and. Oh, Thomas. I mean,
1: that's a perfect oh, one. Oh yeah, that's a great, yes, well, absolutely. And teenage yeah. movies do that, right? Because there's also 10 Things I Hate About You and Taming of the Shrew. And like, it's perfect. It's a perfect way of redoing it in a high school. S- I mean, it makes perfect sense.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, t- I yeah, I totally agree with that. I think I mean, I think that retellings can be really fascinating that way.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um before we like kind of talk about Kate's book, I want to talk about one other thing I think about a lot when I think about retellings. I was telling Kate this before I started. Um if you've ever read the story or the the novel Haroon and the Sea of Stories by Salman Rushdie. It's actually a kids book. It's like for like, you know, young teenagers, I guess I'd say, like not little kids. And he wrote, it's the first book he wrote after the Satanic Verses and after going into hiding. And he was separated from his children. It's uh, honestly kind of an amazing story. And he wrote this book about a boy and his father who go on, like, a magical journey to essentially the Earth's, like, hidden moon. So, you know, this is, like, hardwired for me to love a lot of this shit. And a lot of it is, like, retelling. A lot of it leans really hard into the Arabian Nights, like, stories from the Arabian Nights. But on this, like... Earth's third moon, which is called Kani, which means story. There's the story ocean. And the story ocean is, like, full of story streams. And one way you get a story is, like, special fish in the ocean, like, mix up stories and a new story comes out. And then, though, there's, like, parts of the ocean that are, like, old and abandoned, Right? Like stories that are so old no one likes to visit them anymore. And I always think of that as being like, you know, when you're like channel surfing and some 50s movie comes on and you're like, who watches these anymore? Right? But then the way it's explained is like, but you could pull one of those stories out. Right? And mix it with something new. Or, and revitalize it. And then this story that has been around for ages becomes something new and interesting again. And I always thought it was a really beautiful metaphor for just, like, how story works in general, right? That any old story can be pulled out of that, like, sort of dead zone of the ocean and brought back to life by a a devoted storyteller. Yeah, I, I love that
2: image, that metaphor. That's really beautiful.
0: It is. And if you read that book as like a metaphor for being separated from your kids after having a fatwa against you, yes.
1: Um, I also think that there's something to be said for loving a thing when you're retelling it. And the, and I think this is where maybe it deviates from trope. Like we can love the trope, right? But I mean I don't have like a deep abiding passion for Beauty and the Beast despite having written several Beauty and the Beast stories. Like I think but I think that it takes again a certain kind of love for a text for you to do it the kind of justice that um a retelling often requires to just to be elevated. And I I'm going to use this as my segue to get into Kate's book because I think it's incredibly clear that you have an an abiding love for Romeo and Juliet in this book. I mean, there is, it is, it's magnificent. And it, I have not read Romeo and Juliet since I was probably in college, definitely in college. And there were just so many moments where I was like, oh my gosh, like this is so evocative of the original, like of the, the source material. But not at all a retelling in some way. Like, it's not a beat-for-beat retelling. It's just an—it's a love letter, it feels like.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is. This is a text that—I mean, Romeo and Juliet is a text that means a lot to me, and I would say—I think, think, you know, what we've been talking about with retellings, I think some people sort of come to the idea of doing a retelling, and they're like, um, I love beauty. And, I love the Beauty and the Beast trope, or I love the Hades and per- Persephone story, or whatever. Um, and uh, I love Romeo and Juliet. But also, I feel like um, you know when people say they have like baggage with a text. I feel like people have like a trunk full of baggage about Romeo and Juliet. Yes. Um, and I I think that's like in t- I think that's like times a thousand in the romance community. Um, and I guess what I would say is, like, um, I think one reason we, a lot of us have baggage with it is, like, this is a text that many of us are forced to read. I think many of us are forced to read it too early in our lives. Like, I, I have sort of strong feelings about that. But um, also, like, I know that, you know, when I have been um, sort of, like, parts of com- of conversations in the romance community or sort of um, witnesses to conversations in the romance community about this text, I know that, like, one of the ways that we talk about this text is how frustrating it is that people call Romeo and Juliet a romance, right? right. And and whenever it happens, romance <laughs> readers are like, oh my God, it's not a romance. <laughs> um, and it's not, right? And Shakespeare would also say it is not. Um, I, I guess um, I've always been like interested in that sort of discourse um, because Romeo and Juliet is, is not a romance um, but I still really love this text, um, like deeply love it, um, and I think it is—it's it, painful to me to hear people say this is a story about kind of like foolish people doing foolish things. Yeah. Um, hmm. Because you know they're just they're kids, they're um, kids. and they oh. are intense, and that's what it's like to be a kid. <laughs> Um, and they, they aren't just kids,
1: but they also are like kids that are surrounded by like violence. Well, talk about a community of extra people, right? Like everyone's extra in this play. Yeah. I mean, um,
2: and you know, like it's this really damaged world that is like full of some of the most gorgeous poetry, um, yeah. In all of Shakespeare, uh, I mean, Romeo and Juliet has really beautiful poetry. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: and so, I guess um, I I thought when I had the idea for this book, you know, some of it was like images that I had in my head that are really like, as you guys were talking about before, like pop, very clear to pop culture, like balconies, right. and, um, Things like that. But for me, I just sort of had this question I kept coming back to, which was like you know, what if Romeo and Juliet had not met as teenagers? Like, what if they had been allowed to grow up? Um, like, what kind of people would they have become? Um, and so I, like, I wanted to think about that. Um, but I also wanted this, the the book that I wrote to have very sort of quiet um, moments of tribute to, to, spots of Romeo and Juliet that I think are really beautiful, like really beautifully written, really romantic.
0: It's romantic, right? Like that's the thing. It's not a romance, but it's romantic. Yeah. And I mean,
2: I think, I think it's fair for people to say it's not romantic because they're just kids.
1: I don't know. that's really fair to say. That palm Um, to palm moment is real romantic. I mean, that's, and also appreciating that they are just kids. Like don't discount those like big emotions that you have when you are 14 years old. Like it feels I have read yeah. my diaries from when I was 14 years old and it feels like yeah. it feels like I could die for this person. Yeah. I will die for
0: you. I
2: think and I I also think romance is like um you know often what we are doing is we are like in we are telling adult yes. versions of that intensity, right? Yes. Like People yes. feeling intensely, um, and so I don't know. I think in the in love at first, like when you first uh, meet the characters. Um, so there's there's a prologue to this book, and when you first meet the characters, um, Will, who is the the hero of this book, is 15 years old, and he's really um, restless, like young Romeo is, and he's really uh, <laughs> yes. distractible. Um, he has he's, a wandering eye. Yes. He has a wandering eye. He's nearsighted. So he, he doesn't see things clearly, which is sort of, I mean, he literally doesn't see things clearly, but that's also yeah, of yeah. a metaphor being for being yeah. young and <laughs> confused about the world around you. Um, and he, uh, sees a girl on a balcony and just falls in love instantly. Um, but Things change such, such that they don't meet at that moment, and they get yeah. to grow up and meet each other again later. So I guess all throughout the book, like, what I'm trying to do is offer little touchstones to Romeo and Juliet um, while not retelling
1: retelling the story. Do you have—and maybe this is a question that is too spoilery or—, or, or- that you would rather not answer and that's fine. But do you have a moment that you knew you wanted to put in the book as an homage?
2: Yeah. I mean, there are many, I think that it is true that when I wrote it, I thought if if nobody gets it, like, you know, I didn't intend it, like, anybody who picks this up will see it's Romeo and Juliet. Like, that wasn't really—and um, and when I turned it in, my editor, like, did say to me, like, you know that a lot of people, this— is it's going to—right, they're not going to notice. It isn't that I think, you know, people won't get it, but, like, some of the stuff is subtle enough that, like, if you haven't read the text very recently, like, it won't necessarily strike you, but— I will say that, um, like early in the book, I have a scene that that does sort of try to replicate the palm to palm moment in Romeo and Juliet, where like they early on in Romeo and Juliet when they touch palms, and this is almost like a it's a it's a holy experience for them, It's a sacred experience for them. Um, and I knew I wanted that something like that in the book, so that's there, right? And it's pr- that's pretty early. God, I and think they that's don't a they don't kiss. Ow.
1: I know so they, don't. they don't. I mean, no, it eventually. It's <laughs> a slow do. burn because oh I wrote it. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> in that moment, oh, my God, <laughs> feel all that. Somehow, this is where I got, this is the first time I got real mad um, because somehow in this moment where their palms touch, <laughs> there is, you feel all that, like, pent up, like, heat that teenagers feel in that moment of, like, oh my God, he's touching me. Right. But they're like normal grown-ups having a normal, like mostly normal moment. And it's just so intense yeah. and incredible. And you're magnificent. You're the best writer. Oh,
2: thanks. Thank you. I, I, um, I feel like it's the most romantic book that I've ever written and i think the reason for that is because like what i wanted to explore was like you know particularly will like he he feels like he's grown up so he's let go of that intensity like he sees that as part of his past he's not that person anymore and you know like then as the book goes on it was like what if i get to lean into that intensity like he's no he's still that way he still feels things that intensely but he's grown and he and it doesn't have to be unhealthy it doesn't have to be um, sort of scary. Like, it is it Romeo where you have a sense of doom coming at you all the well,
0: time? Well, and that's because of his parents too, right? And I thought that was one thing that I thought was really interesting. Is you know, part of the reason Romeo and Juliet is so tragic is because they're parentless in the sense right like you're like these parents just want to war with each other more than they want to like love their kids yeah and I found you know and of course in Romeo and Juliet you're just like oh okay but like in Will's case you know his parents you know I don't want to spoil it but they are just they're going through some things and he feels like he's not a part of that because he isn't and it's hard to read because then
1: you're like but it's it's like the heart of the book, too. This other piece that almost is a flip of Romeo and Juliet as I remember it, and tell me if I'm wrong, <laughs> which is this community piece, right? Like mm-hmm. these <laughs> two people have this vibrant, yeah. supportive community around them. This, so we haven't really talked about the premise of this book at all, but um. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about the book. Oh about. yeah, you want me to say you should say that.
2: So I mean I said a little bit about the prologue, but where that leads is that um, you know, this this woman, uh Nora Clark, she has inherited um, an apartment from her grandmother where she spent every summer of her young life. Um, This is a very close-knit apartment building, so it's a six-flat unit in Chicago. Um, All all six of the apartments are owned by people who have been there for a long time, and they're a very close-knit community. Um, And so she is now living in this this apartment because her grandmother has passed away. Um, And uh, another another, uh, resident in the apartment has recently passed away and left his apartment to Will. and Will would like to to rent this unit out as a short term, sort of like, like an Airbnb, like an Airbnb style. Um, and because Nora really doesn't want that, she wants to preserve this sort of perfect community that is, was really important to her grandmother. She decides <laughs> she's going to try to sort of sabotage him a bit, um, and that's a but bit <laughs> of like the the sort of two houses, uh, both <laughs> alike. Um, and so she she's. She thinks she's going to sabotage him. Oops,
1: but in fact, Oops. she <laughs> falls in love with him. So, but part of the plan for sabotage involves these four other residents, the four other flats in the building, um where there are elderly yeah. residents, yes. largely elderly residents who are sort of also annoyed by the idea yeah. of this Airbnb and deeply deeply loyal to <laughs> Nora and to the man yeah. who lived in the apartment before will and so they are all kind of yes (laughs) they're like around a lot and they're helping with the sabotage and like you know my one of my favorite moments is when like the two old ladies knock on his door as he's trying to like dump hit like literally throw out his uncle's you know get rid of things and they're like we brought hot dish (laughs) Right because it feels unlike um, you know, in Romeo and Juliet where it was it felt like the two of them against the world. In this case, it's like the two of them and the whole world is there for them. Like they're at some point, they are part of this much larger supportive community. And it's so beautiful. This is different from Romeo and Juliet, but this is also a bit of a
2: homage to Romeo and Juliet because in Romeo and Juliet there are older members of the of their community the that and the friar and the... were good to them. So the nurse for Juliet, um, the you know like the you know yeah the friar, um, and I think that something I thought about was like, um, what if the what if those um, characters were sort of multiplied and yeah. sort of fuller and surrounding them, and you know I thought about like. Um, like the nurse in Romeo and Juliet is very funny. Um, yeah. And so, and she's a little body. Um, and I so I knew that I wanted the characters that surrounded Nora, particularly in the building. I wanted them to feel like that, right? Even it's there's no um proper analog for the nurse, but in some ways they're they're all the nurse in a way. Um so I I thought about that too. Um I guess what I would say is like. I wrote this book with Romeo and Juliet beside me. Like, I mean, it was really important to how I crafted the book. Um, So it wasn't just, like, the big idea in my head, like, star-crossed lovers or something like that. It was, like, very small details that I tried to weave into.
0: Yeah, like, the language makes its way into the book, the way that it's really it's really lovely. And,
2: and like, um, you know, Nora's name, this is like one thing that I think is, um, you know, some things I think folks will find for themselves or not find for themselves. And it, it does, I hope it doesn't matter either way, but like, you know, Nora's name, uh, means like ray of sunshine. Um, and that is because Romeo says like, it is the East and Juliet is the sun. Uh, and so I, that is why I picked Nora's name. So all these little subtle things, um, you know, I, I was going to say it made it fun to write, but, like, nothing is fun for me to write. But it's, you know, like, it it was compelling, and it was interesting, and it was challenging for me as a writer.
0: So can I tell you what I tell my, my students about, like, when they're reading something like this? Because I teach them about, like, symbolism, and I feel like this is a really good way to talk to people about this. because so And Sarah, actually, you don't know this, but you are a star of this made-up story. So what I tell kids is I was like, my friend Sarah loves to cook and I don't. And if we go to a restaurant together, she's one of those people who's like, oh, there's like a hint of rosemary. And I am the person who's like, I don't know what you're talking about. But I can still tell that I ate a delicious meal, even if I do not know the ingredients that went into it the same way that sarah does and when you read a book like this you can tell that it's delicious right you can tell that the author has carefully crafted and prepared this meal that you were about to read even if you can't tell or don't care to if you just want to like read it and say it's i still had a great meal Right. It doesn't matter if I can't identify the parts. And I think it's a really useful way like reading. Sometimes we're in the mood to like look for the right to look for palm to palm. And sometimes we just want to read it because it's delicious. And both of those things are okay. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. But what I and what I will say is I'm extremely basic when it comes (laughs) to Romeo and Juliet, like (laughs) extremely basic to the point where I was like, I'm going to read this book. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm not going to understand any of the, any of the references and I'm going to be really sad because like my friend wrote this great book and I don't understand all of it. And then I was like, so first of all, I can confirm that you will love this book, even if you don't get all the references, Um And then, all, but also, I don't think it's obscure. I think there are some moments, like, I think beginning with the balconies, you're sort of like, ooh, ooh, I get it, I get it, right? Like, we're in, yeah, I get it. Um, And then, of course, Mm -hmm. palm to palm, I was like, come on, this lady.
2: (laughs) She's so good. When we were talking about the romance retellings in general, and, like, Jen mentioned pop culture, um, like, balconies are... That is now like a pop culture staple. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's like, oh yeah. You can see sort of like a balcony as a romantic set. And it has
1: nothing to do with Romeo and Juliet, right? Like but Well, except it kind of did, right? It becomes <laughs> cultural, <laughs> this is, right? This goes back to that, like, is it a retelling if there's a balcony on it? Yeah. And then it's like, well, no. Yeah. But in Kate's case, yes. <laughs> the power of like myth and symbol. Is
0: it can, it is part of the culture, even if you don't know the source material. Yeah. You know, kids know that snakes have a certain profile, even if they've never read the Adam and Eve story. And so I think that that's the thing that I find fascinating about retellings is you're sort of, um, like, making the invisible visible, right? You're, yeah. like, you're pulling it back up again and saying, like, no, I really want to talk about the balconies, right?
2: yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that how symbols like that get adopted and transformed are interesting. I mean, like, you know, now it's like balconies are like seen as a romantic symbol. Um, but, but there's like complication to this, right? Like, um, is that because, uh, in, in, uh, sort of scenes where a balcony featured feature is it like that a woman is being put on a pedestal. It is not really about who she is, but about like what she represents to like the, the person who is gazing at her. Like, um, so even these things that are very familiar to all of us have depth that we don't uh, like often, right. um, think about. And I, I love a story who, that gives me the opportunity to think about stuff like that. Hopefully, love at first will do that for people. But if it doesn't, I hope it's just a good story, right? Like, I was just a good romance.
0: So we're going to all talk about some other retellings. We've mentioned a few. We talked about Kate's. I know that we're like at an hour, so we'll probably each just mention.
2: I would say uh, two of mine are like literary uh, retellings. Sarah already mentioned one, which is the Sonali Dev series that's going on right now. Right? So um, she uh, has done a Pride and Prejudice one, a Persuasion one. She's got a new one, uh, Incense and Sensibility. It's great. I think that yeah. I mean, such a good S- title. Sonali's writing is just so layered. Um, and it's also, I mean, for me, at least like I'm going to, f- I'm going to feel feelings when I read Sonali. So like, I think her writing is really evocative. Um, and I think that's particularly well-suited to retellings. And I think that series is really impressive. Um, so that's one that comes to mind. I also think there's a lot of um, interesting Shakespeare retellings out there. Um, Recently, Loretta Chase had one that was like, um, now I'm going to forget the title, Um, but it's like (laughs) 10 Things I Hate About the Duke, I think. Um, And what's interesting about it is that it is both a a taming of the true retelling and a 10 Things I Hate About You, sort yeah, of. which is um, fascinating, right? When yeah, you retell so, the retelling. <laughs> yeah, so there's, like, a couple of interesting things
1: going yeah. on there. Uh, so I think that's really interesting. And you know Loretta, Loretta's one of those writers who, like, there's no yeah, way she right, didn't know exactly, exactly what she was doing. And there are characters that show up in
2: there that you think, it, it's sort of like you have this tentative, like, you feel a tentative echo about the text. You're like, is this... And yeah, like it probably is, right? She's doing something interesting, but it's not, again, it's, you don't have to know it to enjoy the text itself. Um, So those are, those are a couple. I have some pop culture ones too, but I'll save those for now.
0: Okay. Well, we come back to. Okay. Um, I am going to talk about It Takes Two to Tumble by Kat Sebastian, which is a oh. sound of music retelling. Although I would I would I mean which I've got to tell you here's <laughs> the other thing. It's not really a retelling. I would say it's more like um I was like it's like the big bang, right? So it it's like the characters have a very similar setup because um one hero Philip and I I'm really embarrassed I was going to ask Sarah beforehand. I don't know how to say his last name. I'm confused by it as an American. So it's like the word acre but with a d in front like but I'm like, it can't be Dacre, but is it like Descartes? I have no idea. But you know what? This is one of the worst things about like when you
2: read and you you're just like, I wish I could hear somebody say this out loud. I know.
1: What is this person? This is why you need Robert Petkoff for all things. Everybody with Viscount for like the first 10 years of their reading <laughs> life. Oh, I am like girding my loins for the next yeah. season oh, yeah. and yeah. the Viscount question. Get ready now. It's true.
0: <laughs> okay. Philip is a sea captain and he is, he's at sea. His wife has died. He has three kids at home who are apparently like wild ones. And he, but he, the, the love of his life was like his first mate who died. 14 months ago at sea and he had to like bury him at sea so he returns home and the like local vicar is watching the children and so I was immediately like is this the sound of music? It's like the, the sea captain and the vicar. I mean, I didn't, I mean, it was also delightful to Yeah, like, go. I want this
2: immediately.
0: Yes, and I was like, it was delightful, though, to also, I wasn't expecting it. I mean, yeah. so it was like that discovery moment, and it, you know, that's it. Like, they're not running away from Nazis, like, but it's just that immediate setup of my ch- My children are wild, and the, like, young, handsome vicar is the one who understands Understands them and you know, and it's terrific. You know, they climb trees and they're wild, but that's really it. And then it's really the story of you know, really diverts from like the plot of the sound of music from there. But that setup was there, and it was a really delightful book. And I loved, I just love that sense at the beginning of like, wait, this like sea, this like terse sea captain who doesn't, you know, he's gonna be so difficult with the children, he doesn't know how to handle them. And I the Sound of Music was very formative for me, so I just got to tell you. Are there any clothes made out of curtains? No. Uh, not to my memory, but I would have to go back and do a... Yeah, a, that sounds amazing. Yeah, it was great.
1: Um, before you do another one, can I do uh, obscure children's movie Please. slash romance novel <laughs> retelling? Um Once upon a time, there was a announcement in Publishers Marketplace, which is the, like, industry uh, Mm -hmm. email, like, email blast that goes out every day that announces the new deals and the the books that are going to be published in the next, you know, however many years. And uh, it was called Charlene and the Chocolate Factory, and... (laughs) And it was a Regency romance acquired by Avon, and I was like, "Hang <laughs> on a minute!" And that book ultimately was not titled that, and it ended up being called um, "How the Duke Was Won," and it's by Lenora Bell, and it is a romance retelling of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. What? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. The- the four, it's basically, like, a bachelorette-style right. Like situation where there's a a, a competition for uh, Duke's, you know, it, essentially for a title and an estate. And he owns a cocoa farm. It's not a plantation, but it is a cocoa farm, and he is, like, importing essentially, like, free trade, like, safely farmed, you know, ethically farmed cocoa into... Um England and Europe. And these four heiresses they go to his home for three days. <laughs> Is Amazing. he super weird? Is he super weird? <laughs> and they he's, he's super crusty. He's very of like course. closed, yeah. buttoned up. And so he's not like he's not like Wonka. He's not weird. <laughs> he's not like singing at you yeah. with his crazy eyes, but like he's he's very buttoned up. And then Heiresses do kind of like peel off in interesting manners. Right. <laughs> so, to until, you know, obviously, so the heroine is not, she is there, fa- she's faking it. She's there as she's pretending to be her cousin. But it is delightful. It's Lenora Bell's debut. And it really, I think, put a stake in the ground for her. But also, I'll never forget <laughs> reading Charlene in the Chocolate Factory and being like, hang on a second. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. <Yeah. laughs>
0: you Both of yours are really good. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because I, there are two other authors I wanted to mention who I think just do so many of them and so well and that's Eloise James who has a whole series of, like you know, and, but almost like to the point where I was looking and I was like, I don't know which one to talk about so I'll just talk about Eloise James and then Laura Florin Wrote a whole series that I also think um, the ones set in Paris, like the chocolate ones, aren't those? The
1: chocolate ones? There's like, they're little fairy fairy tales. tales.
0: Right? Yeah. 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 And again, I think they're not like beat for beat necessarily, but I just think that they're inspired.
1: Eloise James, I just want to say, has two famous retelling series. There's the fairy tale series, which is the one everybody points to. My favorite of that series is When Beauty Tamed the Beast, which is also, interestingly, a kind house, of a, a retelling house of House, the TV yes. show, but also Beauty and the Beast, which is fascinating. Um, and I think, like, pitch perfect for both. And then uh, her her uh, Essex Sisters series is actually a Little Women retelling in Georgian England. But they're all Shakespeare, too. Oh, wait. It's yeah. Little Women and Shakespeare. So like, yeah, you're right. You know, one are the like stories a- Shakespeare? I know the titles are all Shakespeare. Yeah,
2: like even the the one um, where she's in Scotland. I forget the I forget which one that's
0: called. We'll figure it out. And put it but through.
2: that's a bit of like Taming of the Shrew stuff.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I mean, I think there's resonance. Well, Eloisa is also a Shakespeare professor, so I so Shakespeare sort of yeah. all. threaded through all of her books. I I think the house example is good because, I mean, that's what I was saying
2: about, like, another— some of mine were, like, pop culture ones that I think are Mm -hmm. interesting, like Andy Christopher, It's Not the Girl You Marry, it's, like, Ten Things I Hate About You, the Eva Lee series that is, I think, the the most recent one is coming out, but they're all, yeah, these 80s movies, right? So, I I mean— I think it's, like, an interesting feature of the genre, uh, sort of, like, where it will mine for storytelling. I I just think that's really fascinating. And pop culture, which is probably not widely considered as, like, ripe for retelling, right? Because we think Mm -hmm. of pop culture as, like, low in some ways, right? Um, I, I love that authors are, like, taking on pop culture as... a a retelling feature especially because the distinction between high and low culture is entirely false so um i I really love that
0: well and i think lenora bell has lots of them i mean the one where it's the heroine's name is mina penny and she wants to be a spy is like such a straight up like monty penny bond james and
1: again i was delighted by it when i read it i also we've talked i've vaguely talked about this book before but it's I can't do retelling without talking about it. And that's Aster Glen Gray's Breerly, which is, I mean, pretty much a Beauty and the Beast retelling in uh, World War II France. Um, and except instead of Beauty being the one who falls in love with the Beast, it's the Parson father. Her father's a Parson and he gets abducted into the Beast's castle And it's this magical castle, and uh, he falls in love with the beast. So it's really, like, delicious and different and so atmospheric. And this is one of the things that I talked about Honey Trap, too, on our Best of the Year episode last year. And there's something about Astrid Glenn Gray's writing that's just so atmospheric. You really feel like you're in the, you know, the French, you know, countryside in this book. Um, so yes. And then I think it's important for us to sort of name check yeah. erotica here because so much erotic romance is retelling focus. And I'm thinking about there, you know, there's a, a an anthology of erotics short stories called dark fairy tales, which I don't think is available anymore. Um, but we'll put sh- link in show notes to at least the list of stories. Cause I think a lot of them have been republished by the authors um, where every story was written, you know, the, the, Brief for the anthology was you have to retell a story. So C. R. Simone, for example, did um, the, the dancing one, the one with the dancing princesses, I think, which I didn't know that that at all was a fairy tale, but sure enough it is. And then um, Sophie Jordan did Goldilocks and the Three Bears for hers. I mean, like, really fun, different ways of looking at, at fairy tales as being sexy. Um, and then... I would also just, and both of them, both Sierra and Sophie, do lots of retellings. Like, Sierra's probably most famous project is um, the new Camelot series, which is a, retel- a modern retelling of Arthurian legend. And then uh, Sophie, of course, wrote While the Duke Was, no, yes, While the Duke Was Sleeping, which is a retelling of While You Were Sleeping. Those are all really good. And my check. favorite review of that, that book is on Amazon. Somebody's like, this seems very similar to while you were sleeping in <laughs> movie. Jen's always like, some people aren't close readers.
0: <laughs> some people just want to eat a delicious meal,
1: everybody. I was him. just
2: thinking I could remember, um, you know, Sarah, when you said erotica, I can remember one um, – and this was so long ago that I would have to go back and, like, see about it. But I remember this book um, by a writer. Her name was, is Betty Sharp. And it was this book called Ember. And it was a Cinderella. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Yep. Um, it's been a long time since I've thought of that. So I would... But I remember this, like, very clearly as a really... I mean, it's it's told as a... fair. Like, there's a Prince Charming. But I remember it being, like,
1: really different. Um, well, and I mean, it almost feels like we can't do this without, and I can't believe it wasn't the first thing on my list. But it's not a romance; it is pure erotica. But the Sleeping Beauty Chronicle, the Sleeping Beauty Chronicles by Anne Rice, writing under whatever that other name was that she wrote under. You're both giving me like blank faces. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know, know that one. Here's a deep cut, everybody. Basically, Kate. Then not, yeah, Kate. <laughs> I don't well, think I'll go there. Not, <laughs> it's <laughs> not. It's not for you. Um. Anne Rice, in the 90s, wrote a series of, like, true erotica called The Sleeping Beauty Chronicles by A.N. Roculaire. There you go. And, uh, and they are, in many ways, troubling. <laughs> like, it is not, this is not romance. But it's basically, like, if I remember correctly, like, Sleeping Beauty is, like, abducted into this, like, world of like just sexual excess and pleasure and pain. Like, I mean, like there's a lot. It's it is a it's deep look into Anne Rice's, you know, what scratches the hitch, yeah, <laughs> like, you know. I think. But there are maybe four of them. And they were like passed around at Smith as like, has anybody had like everybody had to read these? They were like, I think pretty new at the time. And they are startling. This is ex- this is extremely not what happened to me in college. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they came out in 1983. Oh, they're much older. Yeah, no, they were probably, yeah. I mean, but they were they're I feel like this is one of those moments where it was like The first time I had ever been, I had ever been exposed to this idea of picking up a character that was widely known to be, in this case, like, without agency and basically, I mean, Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, right. My daughter is constantly saying, like, Sleeping Beauty does nothing. She just goes to sleep at the beginning of the movie. And it's all Maleficent, right? Like, and so, and that's true. But in this particular case, like, Anne Rice is doing something completely different with this character. Um, And I think erotica does that, right? Like, Katie Robert is doing that now with other Disney people. And, like, there are, there's there's something about that kind of, maybe it is all about that sort of really visceral response to these fairy tale ideas. You know, there's
2: so much, um it's really interesting. We're talking about retellings, like as we've been talking, like something has really coalesced for me, which is that like retellings are really like a really strong intersection of like, um, you know, you just said like a visceral response or like an emotional connection to a text intersecting with craft, right? Like, you know, something that, a story that has stuck with you or that is important to you or that is formative for you, um, like, you know, coming together with what you can do craft-wise to make that story new. I think that's really, you know, fascinating. Maybe it's something, maybe it's something all authors, you know, get interested in doing at some point.
1: Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about how In the before times, like before we had the internet, before we had Twitter, before we were all kind of in each other's aware of what everybody else was writing all the time, there must have been, there had to have been a moment where those kind of early writers were reading each other and kind of becoming so influenced by each other that the books all evolved similar stories in different ways. Right. And one of the things that I didn't get to talk too much about, and I appreciate we're over time, is this question of like, none of us have really talked about what it about retelling a romance novel, right? Like about saying, well, I really loved Lord of Scoundrels, so I'm gonna write that again. Like I'm gonna re I'm gonna retell a kingdom of dreams. Um, and I think that I wonder if we're doing that subconsciously. When we write, some of us, I'm. I wonder if any of us are doing. I certainly am doing. Like there are definitely moments, like we talked about, brazen and the beast begins in a way that is very. It's sort of an homage to suddenly you, right? But it doesn't go much further than that kind of beginning. Um, I wonder. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I I feel like Tessa Dare is probably probably in those early books was in many ways like writing homage to. Julia Quinn, who came before her. Right. That is interesting. That's, you've just blown my mind. I know me, too. I am like. I guess my question is, is there a reason why we don't talk about retelling other romance novels the way we talk about retelling other things like allowed to retell. You know, uh, Emma, if we're if we're allowed to retell, I don't know, while while you were sleeping, why couldn't we retell King- a kingdom of dreams? That's really interesting.
2: I don't know if it's like, goes back okay. to what we were saying at the beginning about like trope. Is it that because the genre, like a part of the language of the genre is about trope? Yeah. I, I don't know. That's,
1: listen. Why'd you have to end it like this? I'm just here to blow your <laughs> mind. I'm, I'm here to blow your mind. Come back. Time number six. Yes. Figure it out. <laughs> Come back and tell, tell it's us. That's a big
0: question. <laughs> it is true. I'm like, I'm just going to have to sit with that for I
1: mean, a while. I mean, because surely we're all doing it, right? Yeah.
0: Like, Well, but I do think, I think you're right. I think it downshifts to tropes, like a straight up retelling. Is it
1: overt is the question? Like who's, at what point are we allowed to, to do it? Yeah. That's fascinating. But it does feel like at this point you could retell Gentle Rogue, right? I mean and say it. I'm doing retelling of Gentle Rogue and no one's ever said that. And think about that. Also, now I'm blowing my own mind because think about that. Like what a cool thing to be able to take a text that is in many ways problematic, right? right? In all the ways when we did season 2, we spent so much time saying like oh this book was written whenever it was and like there are problematic elements, but let's unpack them. Like what a cool way to say like I'm going to take the I'm going to take the flame and the flower and rewrite that story for a new time. I think adaptation – okay, I'm
0: going to make a – my first, like, instinct is to tell you that adaptation, when you're doing things that are more recent, works better when you're changing medium. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Like, there's a reason, like, Pride and Prejudice is a retelling we can do because it's – right? So a novel-to-novel retelling feels like it would be harder – because I think it would be harder for people to crawl past
1: their own, right? Like, how do you get to the retelling space? Right. Or maybe it needs to be a juggernaut, right? It needs to be yes. Twilight. And so you can take Twilight and make Fifty Shades. Right. Whoa. I have some thinking to do. Me too. I mean, like, but that's true, right? Because you could take Twilight and make Beautiful Bastard. Right. Which isn't shifting medium, but it is shifting genres. I don't know. Now I've let's, la- we're a minute, we're an hour and 25 minutes in, and now we're just I've- gonna leave it with everybody's. We blew your mind. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's probably some sort of juggernaut thing. Good talk, everybody. <laughs> Good talk. <laughs> Look, everyone needs to go read Love It First because it's magnificent. Oh, thanks. It is, I mean, like, it is truly a beautiful, magnificent book. And please, it's if, so if Romeo and Juliet is not your thing, don't let that worry you. Yeah, right. Yeah, don't. It's yeah. I mean, balconies are your thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, sexy towel racks are your thing. <laughs> Sex, yeah. Sexy towel racks. I'm sorry, but it's true. there. Are, there's a feral
0: cat. <laughs> yes, there's an <laughs> amazing I, secondary love look, story. There's something for everyone. There's a picnic there's on a lake. There's an amazing secondary love story. Yeah, it's great.
2: Yeah. Something for everyone, frankly.
1: Yeah. Handsome doctor. (laughs) 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 Well, five times the charm, folks. Yeah. (laughs) Wait, Kate. Yeah. Tell everyone, so if they order today from Fountain Books, can they get a signed copy? They can still get a signed copy, yes. I I will continue to go back to Fountain and Sign Books, so... So if you would like a signed copy. local independent bookstore. Please support local independence as we are in a pandemic. They've got a special page for Love at First, so please feel free to go there. You can buy it if you are snowed in. You yeah. can get it for your e-reader of choice right now. Um, next week, we are back reading A Matter of Class by Mary Bailow.
2: Oh,
0: I've just been reading <laughs> some Mary Baylow. Uh, I've never read Mary Baloo. You
1: haven't? Whoa! I mean, this is a real. This is a. This is not necessarily where I would have started you, but we're doing it. I
2: just. Re, I just re-listened to "Slightly Dangerous."
0: I. You look. I am fully capable of jumping into like the Mary Baylow deep end. I feel okay about it. I mean, Mary Baloo.
1: She's a classic. So, um, we're gonna read that next week. It's an. It's a short novel. So you should be fine. And uh, what else? Find us at FadeMates.net. We're produced by Eric Mortensen. Read Love It First. Read a Kate Claiborne book. Thanks for having me, everybody. Bye, Kate. Bye. Love you.